Thank you, Tommy. That's a uh, song entitled The Bible Stands, and we're going to have a very brief uh, introduction here using the uh, remembrance table for uh, helping us to remember. But uh, I want to read you the words to that song, just the first verse. It says, The Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms. Its pages burn with the truth eternal, and they glow with the light sublime. The Bible stands, though the hills may tumble, it will firmly stand when the earth shall crumble. I will plant my feet on its firm foundation, for the Bible stands." And we have just finished putting on the authenticity of the Bible on our podcast. And then I have also prepared and sent to David the doctrine of canonicity. And uh, I thought it might be an advertisement, if you will, for us uh, to have a few books up here that are mentioned in the uh, uh, two doctrines the doctrine of authenticity, and the doctrine of canonicity. So those are going on the podcast. And so we have here, uh, reading from the left to the right, we have, of course, the Septuagint, which uh, was written, oh, some say, you know, somewhere between uh, 280 and 250. It's difficult to say for sure. But uh, then there's a picture here of Ptolemy uh, and an article about him in the book that is in the, in the middle of our remembrance table and some beautiful pictures. But uh, Ptolemy uh, was one of the four generals who uh, took over for Alexander the Great. They asked Alexander the Great, uh, which, who should be your replacement? And he said, the toughest one. And uh, so uh, we had Ptolemy, Seleucid, Lysimachus, and Cassander. And they divided the world up, if you will, the Middle East as the world per se. And uh, uh, Ptolemy got Egypt. And uh, he was uh, very interested in literature. He was in Alexandria, Alexandria, Egypt, on the coast was named after Alexander the Great. And uh, he was very interested in libraries, and so he thought, I would really like to have a uh, copy in my library of the Old Testament in Koine Greek, because Greek had become the language, uh, the preferential language of literature. So he wanted uh, to have one. And uh, he, he did not have a copy of the Hebrew Bible. This was in 250, roughly, B.C. So he sent messengers to Eliezer, who was the high priest, and uh, asked him for a copy of the Hebrew Bible. And uh, in addition, he said, I would like to have scholars come, and I want them to to translate 
the Hebrew to the to the Greek, the Koine Greek, and uh, he and it's not a lot of difference between the Koine and the classical, so I'm sure it was an admixture. But uh, he said, and I need uh, I need somebody to come translate it, and. Uh, and Eliezer, the high priest, sent him two from each tribe, 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes. So 24 guys came over, and supposedly it has been said that uh, it took them 70 years to translate it. But uh, and the more you read, and the more you understand, it probably wasn't 70 years. It was more than that. But most likely, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, took Took 70 years, but that's how you get the name Septuagint. So they translated it, and uh, uh, I have been fortunate enough to have a copy of the Septuagint here, in in English, of course, and uh, and also in Greek. You have English on one side, and you have the Greek on the other, and it gives you a, a good idea of the Koine, the New Testament, uh, but. Uh, it's primarily classical Greek, uh, and then some have put it into uh, the Koine, which is what the New Testament is written in. And Colonel Thiem always used to say that the classical was much harder than the, the Koine, and I wondered about that. I'm kind of a cynic, you know. I said, I'm not so sure of that. So I audited a course at Baylor. Then we also have uh, a scroll down here with uh, Hebrew. Uh, it's, uh, it's so small you can't read it, but, uh, I, I got, Judge and I were talking about it. I got it from Scott, and, uh, he was always giving me stuff, uh, that he would go here and shop, and there and shop, and here and shop, and he'd bring me like a, he brought me a baseball signed by Brooks Robinson. He brought me a, uh, glove. Can't remember who it's signed by now, a little miniature glove, but, uh, uh, he brought and gave that to me, but you can see the scroll. Of course, that's basically what they used uh, in the olden days, if you will, were scrolls rather than books. When you hear Paul got up on the desk, you know, and talked this, he was looking at a scroll. And then we have uh, the uh, history book over here of Josephus. And I uh, mentioned in one of the doctrines, and maybe perhaps both, the doctrine of canonicity and the, and the doctrine of, of, of authenticity of the Bible, that the only history we have, church history or religious history, let's put it that way, uh, of the interim period, that is between Malachi and the Lord Jesus Christ's birth, uh, is either first and second Maccabee, uh, which is the old, they are, they are Old Testament books in the Catholic Bible. And uh, they they are considered to be uh, by some Catholics and other Catholics as inspired. Depends on which Catholic you you talk about. I went into the Catholic bookstore one day and I said I want to I want to buy a Douay version of the Bible because I wanted to have a Catholic Bible so I could have the Maccabees. And uh, I said, uh, he looked kind of funny at me, and I said, uh, and I make sure it includes the Apocrypha. <laughs> and, of course, he was a big Catholic, having a Catholic bookstore, and he looked at me kind of funny. He said, some people call it that. But uh, the uh, 
interestingly enough, I, I got me one. But <clears throat> the the other history is Josephus, who had, he was Josephus was a an outstanding military man in the Jewish army. And in 66, the Jews rebelled, that's 80, against Rome. And then finally in 70, they, they lost when Rome destroyed the entire city of Jerusalem and also uh, uh, the temple. But uh, Josephus switched sides when he saw that you don't have a chance, Israel. You need to make peace with the Romans or you're going to lose everything. And of course, they did lose everything. They lost the entire city of Jerusalem. They lost the temple. And not a single Jew was said to have ever set foot in the Holy Land for 25 years after 70 A.D. In other words, they just wouldn't let them back in. So you that begins what we see today. And praise be unto God that we now have a peace treaty. I don't know how long it will last, but for the first time between the Arabs and the Jews. Uh, but anyway, this this gives us an idea of uh, uh, how important books are, if you will, about uh, the Bible. But uh, we do have this special book, which is the only translation that we have from from the Hebrew to the Greek. And uh, it was in 250, started in 250, it perhaps uh, took 70 years, perhaps not. But so much for that. Now let's go to our lessons. Uh, we had, we were going to have flowers, and I thought, Tommy, we might uh, be better served if we put these out where people can see it. So that we did. So we're going to have a moment of silent prayer. I want you to please pray for our country, pray for our lesson today, pray for the Word of God, because people have tried to destroy the Word of God and to change it, uh, and still are. We've got to uh, understand that that it's it's a Hitler tried to destroy it, and the Russians tried to destroy it, but uh, you can read. A lot about the destructions and the various copies that have been found, uh, which give us a much better document in our doctrine of canonicity and our doctrine of the authenticity of the Bible. So we'll have a moment of silent prayer. Tommy, you play, please, while we're, we're, uh, lifting our needs up to the Lord and we all understand the perfect prayer is going to happen because we're going to be graced out. So let's go to the Lord in prayer.
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, by way of announcements, we are going to have a prayer meeting at 6.30 on Wednesday, followed by the Bible study in the book of John uh, at uh, 6.30 prayer meeting, 7 o'clock Bible study. So feel free to join us if you choose. Now, with reference to another aspect of worship, which is giving, I'm going to turn on the chart, and in there you can see the two, you might say, reminders of New Testament giving. There are people who believe in the tithe still. Many, many years I believed in the tithe. I used to get my tithing testimony because when Tommy and I got married, I was making a dollar an hour and paying $55 for an apartment and $55 for tuition at Baylor. And she was working at Baylor and paying for her own. And we just started, hardly had uh, anything to pour root beer out of. But uh, uh, it was uh, something. But we tied because I don't know why I did. I was barely a believer. And, uh, but I knew it said you're supposed to tithe, so I've been given 10% ever since, and plus. But, uh, the point being, uh, because God has blessed me, but, uh, we would not have enough money to make it on a given month, but something would happen, like an insurance refund check or something, but the Lord took care of us. And I used to give my tithing testimony all the time. I used Malachi 3.10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house and prove me now herewith if I'll not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And uh, though it probably was in error in many, many parts of that uh, testimony, nonetheless, uh, there are some things that are in Malachi 3.10 that are over here. So I would suggest to you, you sometime take 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and read it, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and read it. But it covers two things pertinent to our giving aspect of worship, and that is to say, uh, uh, if the willingness is there, it is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. So all it takes is a willingness, so when we have a moment of silent prayer, you think about giving And uh, if you want to give, you gave. Whether you have anything to give or not. And then 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Every man according as he purpose in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly uh, or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Simply stated, uh, don't give if you can't give it without attachment, if you can't be a cheerful giver. If you can, give it if you don't keep it. We don't ask for money here as such, except under the auspices, if you will, of Second Corinthians 8, 12, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. So, so much for giving. We're going to have now a moment of silent prayer. Uh, you think about giving, and if you want to give, you can give in that moment of silence, whether you have anything to give or not. Let us pray.
Father, thank You for the privilege of worship. Now, I would ask a very special blessing upon both the gift and the giver. And then bless our service as we will continue, hopefully, to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His name I pray. Amen. All right, now, Kenneth, if you would, please, we're going to go to the music aspect of our service, since music is certainly an aspect of worship. And uh, we're going to have, again, a recording, since we're complying with our authorities and not having congregational singing. So punch a button and let's see what we get. It's kind of like that box of chocolate. Mama says, you know, you never know what you're going to get. All right, Kenneth, here we go. Let's hear that one and then another.
we're going to have to give Emily overtime. All right, now then, last week I taught in part 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5 by way of the doctrine of false communicators. Uh, and before we get into that, let's use 1 John 1, 9. Let us pray again. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of living in the United States of America. We ask a very special prayer for our country. We ask a special prayer for our president. We ask a special prayer for a, a revival our country needs a revival, we think, Father, so uh, uh, we feel confident about making mention of that, knowing whether we do or we don't, it was up to you, and uh, we have the utmost confidence in the perfection of your plans. And now, Father, we're going to study about your plans. We know we have so much to learn, and it's uh, so important for us. So uh, guide us, direct us, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. For a written and or audio copy of this lesson, please go to westbankbiblechurch.com and click on Streaming Audio of Services. And there you will find not only copies of the various lessons that we teach here, but you'll find Pastor Merritt's study books. And those two doctrines that I just put on the podcast have been for years uh, under Pastor Merritt's study books, both uh, the written as well as the audio. So here we go. We're going to do some review, and then we're going to pick up with new material on page two. Remember, the book is written by Paul to Timothy. Timothy's in Ephesus. Paul is in prison in Rome in the Mamertine prison. This was This is his second imprisonment. All right, his first one, you'll remember, was at a villa in Rome. All right, I'm going to read you from the NIV, 2 Timothy 4, 3, 4, and 5. It says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And that we see in abundance of today in our country. And they shall turn away their, turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. All right, and I thought earlier I mentioned to you, we best study the doctrine of false communicators to get the thrust of these three verses. All right, by way of review, the Apostle Paul speaks of Hymenaeus, Philetus, and Alexander as men who had done most serious injury to the church. Old Testament examples of false teachers, Satan himself convinced one-third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion and terrible act of pride. Isaiah 14, 12 through 13, Revelation 12, 4. Satan also was a deaf communicator when he possessed the snake, a creature originally created as a thing of beauty, but later cursed to its present state because of the seduction of Eve. And we saw that in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Satan was also a major player, as we noted, in the slaying of Abel, Genesis 4, 2 through 8. There were false communicators who no doubt tried to dissuade Noah in building the ark. There were false communicators who rose up against Moses. We saw that in Exodus 17, 2 through 6. 
then an extended series of passages in Numbers 16, 1 through 40. And then Aaron could not handle the Exodus generation in Moses' absence. He became a false communicator by default, forsaking his responsibilities as high priest, and we read about that in Exodus 32, verses 1 through 4. Then in Numbers chapters 22 through 25, we find the terrible example of Balaam, and we have studied the doctrine of Balaam. You remember Balaam and Balak and those problems. So evil was this man. He became the New Testament example of all false teachers, especially those with improper motivations. Jude, verses 11 through 12, and Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Then we reviewed the seven churches of Asia Minor and how they were used to describe the universal church and various time periods each represented. Isaiah, who ministered to Judah during the 18th century B.C., was opposed by false communicators. Isaiah 30, verses 1 through 3. Jeremiah was resisted by many false teachers during his 7th century ministry to Judah. Jeremiah 43, verses 1 through 4. And then Malachi was opposed primarily by the priests of the land. They were rebuked for falsely communicating God's word. Malachi 2, 1 through 8. And then Nehemiah, who led them back to the land in their second return. Nehemiah was faced with numerous adversaries as he led the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. And then several of these men made false accusations against the Jewish effort to rebuild the city plazas, walls, and moats outside the city. And then we read about that in Ezra 4, 8 through 15. All right, there were numerous false communicators actively resisting our Lord during the kingdom age. They were primarily the religious hierarchy consisting of the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. Matthew 15, 1 through 3, and 16, 1 through 4. We did not get around to reading Matthew 16, 1 through 4, but I'm just going to read 16, 1 and 2 for you. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came, and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. Then he answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. Then he goes on to say, and sometimes that happened and sometimes it didn't, but you really thought you were something else because you could read the sky and yet you don't really understand I am the Son of God. All right, now then we go for new material in our lesson plan. We're through with the review. All right, there have been and still are numerous false teachers abounding in the church age. As with false teachers of every age, they are to be critiqued based on the content of their teaching. There were false teachers in Corinth teaching there was no bodily resurrection. And if Christ, now then 1 Corinthians 15, 14, 15, and 16, and also I'll refer you to our doctrine of resurrection uh, under Pastor Merritt's study books. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him. If he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And you'll remember we taught that when we taught the book of 1 Corinthians. And there were the Greeks who didn't believe in a bodily resurrection, uh, mainly because the body was so evil. They thought, how in the world can you be in heaven with an earthly body, you know? And we've even had preachers who have said, and I've heard them, I heard one in particular say, I know how my resurrection body's going to be. It's going to be like it was when I was 28 years old and I won the championship as a dash man uh, at the AAU men, uh, excuse me, meeting. And I thought, how absurd. You need to sound like one of those Greeks, doesn't he? But uh, they just couldn't see having a resurrection body like we have today. And it's not going to be like that, said Paul. It's going to be like the acorn. You know, I've told you that story before. Because Paul used it. You put it in the ground and it's just an acorn. Then it grows up an oak tree. That's how it's going to be when we get a resurrection body. It's going to be so different and so wonderful. All right. There were false teachers in Corinth who were critical of Paul's speech, devotion to grace, and his appearance. He was a bald-headed guy, short, and uh, had an aquiline nose, if you will, or a large nose, I better say. All right, it is interesting to know Paul says false teachers often are glib entertainers who have little substance. Let me just read you about some of those fellers. All right, 2 Corinthians 11, 1, reading through verse 6. I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you are already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Now, this, these scriptures are full of sarcasm, so keep that in mind. I promise you to one husband to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easy enough. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. Those are visiting pastors, if you will, who come and have, you know, their six sermons that raises the hair on the back of your neck. They don't have to slug it out every day teaching the Word of God. All right, I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Now let's go on with 2 Corinthians eleven twelve, And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. Then 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, and dropping down to verse 16, and then 20, reading through verse 28. In part, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. Now then, verse 16, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. 
Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind talking like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. And besides everything else, and here's the worst problem, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. All right. There were false teachers at Jerusalem who mixed Judaism and Christianity. Here are a few selected passages. We're going to go through Hebrews. Now you got to remember the book of Hebrews. When you read the book of Hebrews, you have to understand. It's written in 68 A.D. And uh, the war started in 66 when the Jews rebelled against Rome. And uh, they continued to rebel until 70 when they were totally destroyed. Recall my story about, again, uh, Josephus and how he served in the Jewish army and then went over to the Roman army when he tried to get Israel to surrender. And uh, the Hebrew church was, at this particular point in time, reversionistic. They could not turn loose of their Judaism. They wanted to go into the temple. They wanted to offer sacrifices. They wanted to pay penance. Even Paul himself was sucked into that at one time. And God had to put him in prison, you know. Because they're not supposed to be doing that. They're supposed to be in the Word. He makes statements like, you know, you ought to be teachers right now. But you're not teachers because you have someone to teach you. Teach you the basics of Christianity. And James was in charge of the Christian churches in uh, uh, Jerusalem. And that's to whom the book of Hebrews is written. All of the Jews who were there who just wouldn't give up their Judaism. So keep that in mind. We don't know who wrote the book, by the way. Uh, so uh, Colonel Thiem at one time said, I'm just going to call him Andy Anonymity because we don't know who wrote the book. And then he kind of began to think after many, many years that, well, maybe Paul wrote it, but I'm not sure. Well, none of us are sure. But he also said, if God had wanted us to know who wrote it, he'd have told us who wrote it, you know. But uh, he didn't. All right, here we go. Moses, verse 5 now. We're going to read 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not hearken your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers were tested and tried and for 40 years saw what I did. Colonel Thiem uses that in verse 6 as an introduction to the doctrine of faith rest. Then he goes into the New Testament. But uh, he wants to draw the, the relationship or the, uh, the, the fact that our faith rests of believing in Christ as the entree, if you will, and then trusting Him and knowing that everything that happens in our life is what God would have to happen uh, was what Israel didn't do. They didn't trust Him. Moses led them through the desert. He led them to various places of no water, then too much water, or too much water first, and then no water. They had the deep sea, uh, the deep sea. 
the Red Sea had to be divided. Then we got ready to go in the land. Joshua had the same problem. It had to, the uh, Jordan River was overflowing, so it had to be parted. And so they got up there and put the priest in front. And as soon as the priest's foot touched the water, again, the water split. And they were able to come into the land. All right, so testing, of course, of Israel. Time and again. You remember Korah? You remember how they all rebelled against Moses? And we had the doctrine of Korah or Korah, as we find in the New Testament. And we studied that extensively. But we're not to do that. And that's the whole point here. And the, and the Hebrews were not to do that. But they just kept refusing Bible doctrine and refusing uh, God's Word. Alright, just as their forefathers did, says the Scripture. Alright, now then let's go to chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day, which is Christ's coming. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, we say, alive and powerful. Sharper than any double-edged sword, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow and judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens... That's Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. All right, of course, that's our job today. You know, we find people today because of the virus, because of the election, because of so many things where they're just scared to death and they're just down and out and not trusting the fact that God is in his heaven and all is right with the world. But it's our job to understand that by faith. Jesus Christ, of course, knew and the Father knows and uh, certainly uh, the Holy Spirit knows who's going to win the election and our job is to relax about it and understand the right man is going to win and that's our job is to pray for the election and to pray for the virus and to pray for anything you want to pray for and I am just full of joy that I can pray and uh, the scripture says that I probably will pray wrong in other words, I probably will be praying for the wrong thing. But praise be unto God, the scripture also says that my prayer and your prayer, maybe you might pray wrong, I don't know, but we're, we're gonna pray and God's gonna get a perfect prayer because of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the whole Trinity, but more particularly Christ and the Holy Spirit, because the Father gets that perfect prayer. And that should make all of us uh, sleep better at night. 
All right, Hebrews 5.11, reading through that verse 14. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. Now, he's talking to the Hebrews. Hebrew Christians, uh, it's just slow. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk. Not solid food, not meat. Anyone who lives on, lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Interesting verse. You take in the Word of God, then you can distinguish from good and evil. Isn't that interesting? Uh, that means you, will know what is a good thing and what is a bad thing. And so you can pray accordingly based upon doctrine in your soul. Bible doctrine in your soul. All right, now let's talk about some additional false teachers at a different place. Antioch in Syria. All right, there were false teachers who came from Jerusalem to Galatia, particularly Antioch, to teach a doctrine of salvation and spirituality by faith and works. Remember our teaching in the book of Acts and the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey when we had, of course, Paul establishing churches on his way through Asia and Antioch was one of those uh, churches. Uh, before he took off on his first missionary journey. He, in, in the first missionary journey, you will remember, it was a, a Barnabas. And then the second missionary journey, it was Silas that went with him. All right, I'm going to begin now in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. We'll read through verse 4. Then some men came down from Judea to Antioch, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Oh, we studied that, didn't we? And it was such a wonderful study in the book of Acts because we found out that those folks who are our super Christian apostles, they had the same problem we do from time to time. They argue and they fuss. And you had these folks who came in from Judea and talked about you have to be circumcised whether you're a Gentile or a Jew. And it's particularly those Gentiles who are not circumcised. They need to be circumcised right now. Because they can't be part of Christianity if they're not circumcised. And Paul said, you're crazy. That's not right, idiot. In other words, that's not the way it is. And then you had Barnabas who was arguing with him at times. And then poor old Peter got on the side of those who came from Jerusalem when they came. And they had the same story about circumcision. And... Uh, Well, Paul had to address him, or better said, dress him down. He had to pull, as they would in the military, each button off of his surf, or in the Air Force, when we'd give a guy an Article 15, uh, we would make him tear off his stripe, you know, because you got a choice, Bubba. You can either get a special court martial or you can get an Article 15. 
because you did so-and-so, you know. And then uh, uh, I remember in one particular case, this young airman immediately grabbed that strike. And uh, I was with the, the uh, squadron commander at that time. I was his adjutant. And the squadron commander grabbed a UCMJ book behind his desk and threw it at him and told him, don't you ever do that until the orders come through and it's written. Then you can take that stripe off because men have died for that stripe. You understand that, Airman? And, of course, the guy made an impression on him, no doubt. He did dodge the UCMH, UCMJ. That's the book that you use in the military for your uh, uh, judicial procedures. procedures. All right. So these false teachers, and they came and they claimed that you had to be circumcised so much so that Paul said, well, let's go down. Uh, the ones that in this particular case came from Jerusalem. There was another group who came from, uh, I'm sorry, came from Judea. There was another group who came from Jerusalem. And of course, uh, that really set Paul off because he thought, did James say that's what is to happen? And so they all got together and they went down to see James and address the problem with him. And I'll read you about it. But mainly it's in the book of Acts. The 15th chapter, by the way, the book of Acts. Alright, and I'm going to start with verse 5. Okay. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, once they got there, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, now here's where Peter changes. Peter was very volatile. See, first of all, he was one of those guys who, with the people who came from Jerusalem, he was on their side. Paul had to dress him down. But now, Peter got up and addressed them. Now, see, he'd already been to, uh, again, Carnel- with Carnel- at Cornelius' house. He had already witnessed to them. The Holy Spirit had already come. And he had seen that Gentiles can get saved. Gentiles can get the Holy Spirit. But he forgot that when he got under pressure, when people came from Jerusalem. So it just shows they were as much humanity as we're humanity. So after much discussion, now they're back in front of James. They're back in Jerusalem. Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers... You know that some time ago when he went to see Cornelius, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Now you can find that in Acts chapter 10, and then you can also find in Acts chapter 11 where he has to defend himself for doing that among some legalistic Jews. Now let's read on in verse 8. God, who knows the heart, showed that He accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as He did us. He made no distinction between us and them, for He purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke which neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. So Peter comes to the aid of Paul and Barnabas, and of course you know what James did. James said, wow, you guys are doing a great job. And I didn't authorize these guys to go up there, these loose cannons who went up there and made these wild statements about circumcision, etc. I didn't authorize it. 
but uh, I'm going to send Silas with you, Paul, back. Uh, and he's going to carry a letter from me. And he's going to say, it's okay to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Aren't you glad that happened? We're Gentiles and we got the Lord Jesus Christ just like the Jews did. All right, now then, let's go on here. We're talking about false teachers. Now we have some more false teachers. There were false teachers teaching post-tribulation theory. In other words, that uh, you're going to go through the tribulation and then the rapture is going to happen. They seem to abound in Thessalonica. All right, Paul addresses the situation. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers. So he starts off by saying, gathered to Him. What does that tell you? He's talking about the rapture. Because when Christ comes back, He stays on the earth. But this is where we're gathered to Him in the air, of course. And that will become clear as we go on. To become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord was at hand. Now in scripture it's not day of the Lord, uh, but uh, we have to understand that there was a mistranslation uh, here because of the fact that the day of Christ is at hand, but the day of the Lord is not at hand. That's just tribulation and of course it's then followed by the second advent, then the uh, millennium. But the day of Christ is the day of the rapture. So saying that the day of the Lord was at hand. It is not at hand, he's saying. Not the day of the Lord. Because he's talking about a, the tribulation. In other words, he, this turkey, pardon the expression, was trying to teach them that first there's going to be Christ, of course, at this particular point in time. It's not going to come until we have the rapture. Then we're going to go be with Him in the air. And then at the rapture of the church, of course, there'll be the tribulation. There'll there'll be the second advent. That's what He taught them. But they got mixed up because somebody came. Notice it says by letter, by hand, by report, uh, that you're going through the tribulation. You're not going through the tribulation. Don't think you are. There's no such thing as sign that teach that. There's no... And he'll go on to say, do you see the Antichrist? Well, if you don't see the Antichrist, is he in the temple? Well, then why would you think that the day of the Lord is at hand? So he goes on. Alright, so the word Lord in in verse 2 is the correct translation from the Greek kurios and not Christ from Christ Christos as found in the KJV. So the KJV here is wrong, and the NIV has corrected it. This is a major error in an attempt on the part of Satan to teach a post-tribulation eschatological doctrine. The day of Christ refers to the rapture. The rapture must take place before the day of the Lord, and clearly such had not occurred. Paul warns the believers in Thessalonica to not be misled and a chart comparing eschatological views will help. You have the pre-tribulation theory, where the rapture happens, and then you have the seven years of the tribulation, then Christ returns, then you have the thousand-year millennium, and then you have eternity. You have the mid-tribulation folks who believe that it will happen in the middle of the tribulation, the rapture. And then Christ will come back, and then you'll have the millennium, and then eternity. Then you have the post-tribulation folks, which is, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh 
Uh, we don't see many of them anymore, but at one time they just used to be everywhere. I faced them so many times when I worked with the campus crusade for Christ. Folks would come and there was a teacher at Baylor in the seminary. There wasn't really a seminary at that time, but, uh, they, in the Department of Religion who taught post-tribulation. And of course he was a minority, but still he was powerful. And he could convince a lot of young minds. That's the way young minds are. They come up with more BS than you can possibly imagine. Uh, it's just, uh, sad, uh, but that's part of being a young mind. It's part of growing up. That's why you have parents who are supposed to teach them. All right. Now then, so, so much for post-tribulation, of course, and that's where they actually think that the Christ's return and the rapture are the same. So you can see it there in the seven years. You'll go through the tribulation. I know poor Tommy was raised in Pentecostalism, and they are all post-tribulation folks. They believe, you know, you are going through the tribulation. Aren't you? You know, uh, aren't you poor now? Uh, aren't you having troubles and trials? and tri-? Well, that's what was happening in Thessalonica, one of the most persecuted churches in all of Scripture. So they were easy pickings, if you will, uh, until Paul wrote them in the second chapter, verses 1 through 10. He makes it clear. And the chart makes it clear. So uh, this is uh, provided just for teaching purposes. Now let's continue on with this verse. Beginning now in verse 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Then you'll know you're in the tribulation when you see the Antichrist. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in the temple. In other words, Paul is saying, do you see the temple? Do you see him in the temple? The Antichrist? Well, wake up. In other words, claiming in the temple to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is holding him back. That is the Antichrist. What's holding him back today? You and me. Because we have God the Holy Spirit in us. And he is with us. So what's holding him back? So that he may be revealed in the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. The rapture. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. All right, there were false teachers who tried to put church-age saints back under the Mosaic law and we studied that when we studied First Timothy. So we're going to pick up right there next week, the Lord willing and the quick doesn't rise. You'll notice we have a lot of scripture about false teachers why is that? Because there are a lot of false teachers. And uh, they're around everywhere. And they will come back with things that really sound pretty good. But you got to take the Scripture 
and let the God, the Holy Spirit, teach you what is truth and what is false. All right, now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I would ask that you would pray that the Word of God would have effect and that I would get it out clearly. That is to say, an invitation. An invitation of what? An invitation to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So right where you are, if you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? You are without Christ. You are without hope. You are without eternal life. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord hath laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is indeed by grace that you are saved. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Oh, what must I do to be saved, cried the jailer. And the answer was given. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I'm going to pause now for a moment. A moment of silence. And it's done specifically so that if you're without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life, you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right where you are, whatever you might be doing. You don't have to jump through any psychological hoops. You don't have to... Promise God you're not going to do it anymore. You don't have to walk an aisle, raise your hand, or any of that nonsense. No. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And then I'm going to have our benediction. So do it now. It's just going to be a short time of silence. Father, we are grateful for the privilege to be able to come together and to study. Now I would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, make it real, in order that we might grow in your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ. Amen.